don't know if you guys have seen scenes like this, but you know, these, these, these Christian groups that tour around, there's a biker group that tours around, you know, do these, I like, to see jumping over buses to see the for Jesus. Team. Right, right. Uh, what was it called? The power team. I wanted right. to join the power team. I can team do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's right. <laughs> Including ripping this phone book in half. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I am Nick Lannon from Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here as usual with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you gentlemen today? Excellent. Doing great, Thank Nick. You. I'm coming to you live from my mother-in-law's sewing room in Portland, Oregon. How are your summers uh, starting off? Mine is great now. We bought two window units for our house. Nice. So, yeah, it's go. great. How yeah, long have you lived well there without well. window units? Well, we've been, yeah, I guess uh, four years in this house without window units. So it's a big house. And there, it was made for, it was an old house. So it's made for all, for all seasons in New York. Mm-hmm. But it's also made with the understanding that summers last, you know, three or four weeks of <laughs> intense heat. And I'm not, I'm not used to that. Man. I'm, I'm, from, I'm from South Texas where you have, you, <laughs> You go anywhere, you have air conditioning yeah. everywhere. So. Yeah, it was funny when we were in Vienna, um, they don't have a lot of uh, central air. Uh, there's a long history of the uh, Germans and Austrians being wary of um, of forced air. It's really sort of, it goes back to sort of lore. But anyway, we had one of these heat waves and it just shut the town down. And like at one mm-hmm. point we had a big Great Dane and Liza and the Great Dane and I just sat like on the floor in our apartment, like in the shade in front of a, in front of a um, fan and just just sat We're like this is all you can do <laughs> i was like i can't wait to get back to america where they have blessed forced air conditioning it was so amazing so um yeah well that's congratulations that's a big step into the 21st century there yeah yeah the 20th they've only had, century they've only had window units for i don't know 100 years it's like free on they finally got that free on stable enough that's right <laughs> Well, listen, guys, we just celebrated America's independence on the 4th of July, and it got me thinking about freedom. Freedom is something that we hold more dear than almost anything else in our lives. After all, it was Patrick Henry who famously said, give me liberty or give me death. And yet the Bible teaches us that we as sinners are something less than free, that our wills, in fact, are bound, and our Anglican 39 articles echo this. In sin, we lack freedom. But what does that mean? Are we robots? Do we have agency at all? Uh, So as the 4th of July fireworks celebrating our freedom fade, I wanted to ask you guys, are we free? Do I have free will? Am I a robot? Well, that's, those are two different questions, because I think you might be a robot, in fact. Uh, just, in fact but, but, do we, but do we have free will? I mean, you've come to the, um, you know, this is the precipitating cause and question of the entire Reformation. I mean, this is where Luther uh, himself, by his own attestation, wrote what he considered his greatest work, the bondage of the will. And it had all to do 
with a read on Augustine in particular, which was just straight from Paul about our inability to save ourselves, you know, whether or not it was a gift of God, a free, great, free gift of God, or if it was some combination of the human will and God's initiative um, that would sort of make a, a mix. And so it certainly is a big question. And I think the fact that too few people have really considered it is part of the, the anemic reality of our sort of contemporary American Christianity is the fact that for many people, the, the answer would be, I don't know a lot of things about theology or some big words, but I know one thing is that I'm not a robot and I've got free will. And, you know, the entire history of Christianity would beg to differ with them. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think in, the, in the normal, normal, I guess the, the average person's mind, there is this dichotomy between, on the one, one hand, everything is totally determined by God and we're, we're, we're puppets. He's the puppet master. And on the other hand, I, I can I'm told I can do anything I want. There's nothing I can choose good or evil. I can choose to believe or not believe, and I'm completely and totally free to do anything I, I want. Um, and you know, I think classically, uh, of course, Anglicanism and I think Christianity in general, since the Apostolic Age on, has said no. The, the truth actually lies somewhere in between that. That yes, you always do what you want, but before God works in your heart what you want is always right. evil. <laughs> what you right. want is already yeah. always contrary to You have to all God. the freedom in the world yeah. to sin in, <laughs> in any way you want to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the big <laughs> distinction, though. I think that was, that was the big distinction, which, which I think helps break through the um, sort of superficial impasse of like, well, I'm clearly not a robot, and I have some agency, so I must have free will. And I think that's why the key term is the, the bondage the bond, of the will. Exactly. That the, that the will is enslaved, because our was the way of Gerhard Ferdi, a blessed memory, once described the sort of two ways of seeing theology with respect to this bound will. He said that either you think that people are too free, and that's their problem, and then therefore they need to be um, be constrained. You know, and a lot of Christian history can be seen. A lot of a lot of sort of politics is just that. You know, that we need to build fences around people to constrain them. Um, or is the problem that we are too bound? In which case, Christianity comes in to liberate. And so the Bible would argue that we are in fact bound, enslaved to sin and death, and that that is the freedom that has been purchased by Christ on the cross. Which is interesting because then it becomes a different type of bondage, but to Christ. You know, it becomes a slavery not to sin and self, but to um, to to servitude for him you know and i think that's the that's the sort of counterintuitive message that that still gets at people particularly as we celebrate you know our sort of freedoms you know on the fourth of july is that this this counterintuitive idea that we actually are are not um you know when we're living in sin and sort of uh evincing our basis um our, our slavery to our basis desires we're actually exposing our incredible bondage to ourselves as opposed mm-hmm. to the freedom so the very thing that we celebrate as supposed freedom is actually what the bible describes as the exact opposite in fact bondage yeah no i i mean i i think that's right i i remember having several conversations and, and it's you know when you work through the 39 articles with a group of people who haven't ever been through them which i, I do every two years in my church we go through the the articles and this this topic always brings a lot of wait a minute that, that can't be right what are you, what are you what are you talking about and and part of it is people will go back to places in the scriptures where we're told obviously repent trust in Jesus believe turn okay. from your present path and go to the next and they'll think well wait a minute if God's commanding us to repent and believe how can it be that we don't have the freedom to repent and believe and that's very similar to the argument, you know, Pelagius made about works, right? That, that, that 
hey, why would God command you to do something that's right that you can't do? If, of course, you can you can be righteous, if, or God wouldn't command you to be righteous. So so therefore, Augustine got wet when he asks God to help us be righteous. We need His help. We can do it. And so you know, the response is, of course, uh, yes. Those commands are there that require you to repent and then turn to and trust in Jesus. But that word itself, uh, those those calls to repent and believe are themselves the instruments mm. by which God, the Holy Spirit, turns the heart and frees it yeah. so that it can and will ultimately believe. You wouldn't want to do that. You wouldn't want, you wouldn't have wanted right. to choose Jesus if Jesus hadn't first chosen you. The Lord speaks in a creative way. He said, let there be light. And there in fact was light. His word actually created that which it spoke. And in the same way, when he says, be righteous, he sends Christ into the world to make the unrighteous righteous. I mean, I get it. Yeah. And you get, you get the pushback though. I mean, I, I remember for me personally, this probably was the precipitating question that kind of turned me into a theologian back in college. Cause I remember it just kind of ignorantly walking through my kind of pop evangelical um, life um, and then coming to sort of the deeper faith in college uh, in, in part by, by reading church history, but really kind of skirting this issue until someone who had gone been brought up in like the PCA or something uh, said, well, have you read Romans nine through 11? And I was like, no, I thought Romans ended in <laughs> Romans eight. You know, And he said, well, you should go read that. And I remember reading that and like putting it down and becoming enraged, like, yeah. like really, really very, very upset, uh, which took about six months. I mean, I, I tell people, cause I walked through people through 39 articles too, Matt. And I'm, and I'm quick to confess my own, um, my own sort of testimony in this and say, look, I'm not surprised that some of you are upset. Like I almost walked away from the faith. I was so frustrated by this question. I read, you know, J.I. Packer's evangelism, the sovereignty of God. I read all about Molinism and read about middle knowledge and all of these one, all of these things. And ultimately all I can say is that when it finally came down to it, my sort of uh, surrendering trust to God and his inscrutable will was finally the place that I ended up. And I would say that it was an incredibly freeing experience, you know, reading Luther's bondage of the will and actually having these really hard questions. You know, he asks, he says, he calls it the, the worst question you can ask in the Bible, which is what Paul himself asked, you know, can the potter simply make pots that are just fit for wrath so that it makes the beautiful pots that much more beautiful? Like that's an incredibly frightening question. And yet he asks it on our behalf so that we have to walk through it and then finally, like him, fall down and just and just confess that God is God and we are not. And aren't we grateful that he has deigned to, to uh, condescend even to someone like me? And even the sort of real world examples that make the most of our agency, like the freest decisions that we think we make, when you actually burrow under the surface of them, you start to be able to see the ways in which we have forces acting on us and forces pulling on us. I mean, the simplest example of standing in front of your closet, choosing what you're gonna wear that day, that seems like an incredibly free decision. You can choose anything you want, but who are you gonna see that day? What are you planning to do? Who do you have to impress? What impression do you want to put out into the world? All of these things, are like ropes pulling you this way, pulling you that way. And that's what we mean by the bondage of the will. Sure, you have a will, you can choose what you wanna wear, but that will is being pulled and being forced and being acted upon. It's 
That's right. Thousands. I mean, I think Jonathan Edwards argued in Freedom of the Will that you you wouldn't even be able to make a choice where there are not some pre-existing inclinations one way or the other. I mean, you, you if you just if you were placed in front of two like a Sprite and a Coca-Cola can, and you had no we're looking no for sponsors by the way. <laughs> no preceding experience of either one. No no inherent likes or dislikes you would do you just couldn't make a choice there's no such thing as actually pure libertarian free will mm. because you don't you, you every choice is influenced by some pre-existing influence and and so he 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 jumps from that to well for human nature as a whole that pre-existing influence is we love ourselves we, that's right we we love i love me more than god more than you more than my wife more than my children more than anything else and so I, all of my choices are going to be predicated on that um, and so, yeah, that's, that's the bondage. It's not that I, it's not that I'm, I, I really, really want to do something good, but I can't because God has constrained me in somehow, in some way, or the devil is keeping me from it. It's I really love me so much that every single thing that I do is apart from Christ, every single thing that I do is conformed to that pre-existing love. That's right. Well, that's like Augustine talks about it. He says, you know, mm -hmm. it's not that we love too little. It's like we love all the wrong things way too much. You know, like we love ourselves. We love our sins. We love our pleasures and passions. And I think that's where, you know, for me, it's been a really interesting because I never understood, you know, when I heard Presbyterian-ish reform people talk about, you know, the power of prayer. And I was always sort of cynical about it. I was like, well, why would you pray if God already knows everything? Like we're all robots. There's no reason. And you realize that, like, you read, like, Romans 5 and 6, you know, that, the, that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes to Romans 6, well, you who've died to sin, how can you continue to live in it, like we talked about last week? And you get this idea that, that the, the controlling love of God in Christ becomes this motivating factor that is at war, you know, as Romans 7, is at war with the, with the other loves of your life. And there's a genuine sense, and you thank God for this, that— you would like it to be otherwise. Like I would, you know, I look at my wife, I look at my kids, I look at my congregation, well, mainly my wife and kids. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but, you know, the people that I'm given to love, and I say, Lord, increase my love for them by the power of your spirit that will decrease the love for myself, which will then ultimately continue to work out this salvation that you have graciously given me. And I think that's, you know, it, it's it's become clearer the older I get, I guess, with the more responsibilities I've accrued, just in the nature of, of neighbors. But I, 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 it makes sense to me in a way now that, that it just didn't as a cynical, you know, 18-year-old uh, who just was convinced that the only true thing in the Bible was that I had the freedom to choose or not choose God. And if you if you took that away from me, then what was the point of belief at all? to a place where I am now where I'm, you know, growing incredibly grateful day by day of the, the confidence that, you know, that he who has called you, you know, sanctified, justified, sanctified, and glorified, you know, the, the great golden chain of Romans that all of the reformers referred back to. And I'm, uh, you know, live in the, the sort of security of that promise being purchased for me outside of me um, in a way that, you know, I know sounds annoying to the cynical 18-year-old. But I pray that something by the power of the Spirit through the preaching, teaching, and proclaiming will um, convert the bound will um, into someone who, who finds this to be a place of great um, sort of enjoyment and contentment. I mean, that's what I learned in an article said, you know, the, the doctrine of predestination unto eternal life is a wonderful comfort. It's good for the news. Believer, it says it's good news. And it says for the carnally minded, you know, it sets before them, it provokes wrath and sets before them division. But 
but for those who are, you know, for, for the spiritual, it is a, a wonderful, good comfort. And I say, well, you know, they, they knew something, uh, those guys, when they wrote that. You know? <laughs> so praise God. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think the idea that I had, if, if, if I believed that I am a Christian, that I am, I am justified because I freely chose Jesus without his grace going before my, my choice, then that would also mean that I would have the power to choose to not follow Jesus That's right. um, after a certain period of time. So I, should, so I should choose not to do so. And so the libertarian free will, while it sounds really liberating, I guess, when you first hear the idea, it actually introduces a, a level of fear and trepidation into the Christian life. Right. Because who knows what I'm going to do tomorrow? I mean, if, if, if it really is true that I am, by my own will, the master of my destiny, oh my goodness, <laughs> I have no security at all. Yep. I, I know myself, and I do crazy things every day. I do crazy things every, <laughs> every week. So what am I going to do tomorrow with Jesus? So, right. And to the extent that you think of freedom as a possibility and as good news, you're underestimating the human problem. Ephesians could not be more clear. Um, you're not somebody who is standing before a crossroads needing to make a good choice. You're dead. <laughs> that, that's they're, they're, So what good choice can a dead man make? Uh, none. In fact, we need to be resurrected. And so thank God that it's not up to us to make a good choice. It's up to Jesus Christ to come and choose us from our death and sin and to resurrect us into new life. That's right. I mean, and you'll hear this, you know, the way that this plays out in real life though, you know, you can, and again, bondage of the will is illustrative in this respect, because what happens is Erasmus wanted to, you know, he, he was aware of the fact that the Bible, uh, you know, was pretty much down on in general, the concept of our, of our free will. And yet he wanted to maintain one little piece, like carve right. out one little. And so Luther's point to that was like, let's agree that being saved is the most important thing that could happen to a human being. And you're saying that it's 1% our will and 99% oh. God's. Well, then guess what becomes 100% important? That 1%. Yeah. Like yeah. that's what it, so it doesn't matter. So it, Luther was like, why make it 1%? Why don't you make it the whole way? Go, go Pelagius. You know, Erasmus knew the Pelagius had been condemned. And so he couldn't do that. But he's like, well, why are you, why are you discounting the power of this will? If there's any involved at all, that's what Galatians is about. Right. If, law, if righteousness could come by the law, it doesn't matter how small the law is, that becomes the most important thing. Everything. So then you, yeah. so you become, so you have these sermons, and Nick and I have heard a million of these sermons. I'm sure you have too, Matt, where the idea of the human person is that they, you know, they haven't uh, let, get them to yes, you know, like that old sales book or whatever. Um, and so God loves you so much. Don't you see that choosing him is the best thing for you, um, you know, and all of this sort of idea that the real problem that you have is that you just haven't decided, haven't seen clearly enough that you now need to make this choice. And so this, you know, just the, the sort of uh, depiction of the, the love of God and the life that you would have, you know, the appealing to your will just becomes more and more kind of ethereal and beautiful. But then what happens is eventually those preachers, after years of preaching this and having seen people not converted, well, then they end up turning the, the, the carrot into a stick, you know, and then they start saying, well, now look at your life and look at the way that your choices have made you this way. And this is, and it's the way that the sort of appealing to the free will um, sort of devalues the, the seriousness of the problem, but also 
undercuts the power of the, the preaching because we're not preaching to people who are like you said nick in front of a you know robert frost two roads diverged in a wood or something we're preaching to the dead who have to be brought to new life by faith which is an altogether different way of understanding the predicament and proclaiming the word than which is often often preached that's a that's a really good point about preaching and about the way church is quote unquote done a lot is determined by what you think people are capable of in themselves. Mm. So yeah. if, you, if you think that the, the person really is capable of being persuaded by human reason or hum, or entertained into the faith or, or, or shown how or gee, cool enough, like gee, I'm cool. Yeah. Enough. Yeah. I mean, Jesus is really cool. I, I was yeah, talking about uh, sneakers. <laughs> I was, I was reminded of, I don't know if you guys have seen scenes like this, but you know, these, these, these Christian groups that tour around, there's a biker group that tours around, you know, do these, I like, to see jumping the, over I buses to see the for Jesus. Team. Right, right. Uh, what was it called? The power team. I wanted right. to join the power team. I can team do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's right. <laughs> Including ripping this phone book in half, right. you know, which is awesome. Through Jesus' power. Right. So you've got to do that. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that I Wait, think this Wait, let's be clear. I, if anyone in the power team is listening to this, then we'd love JD to. Said and please, JD said yes. that. And I would like Not to join me. still. So Not I can. I can take a start cycle of Diana ball and we can go. So. <laughs> but the, uh, but the idea is, is that because, you know, we're, we're appealing to people who have the ability to choose and, and it's our, it's up to us to persuade, then, then that's what we're doing. We're, we're directing our church worship service, our preaching, right. everything to try and appeal uh, to the person. And it becomes over time, just like a commercial, just like a, yes. a, a marketing a marketing ploy rather than if you try if you place your trust in the power of god's word and the gospel itself as the means and the instrument by which god turns uh, uh cold dead hearts into living, living right. true ones then... and this is working with the like we talked about in the holy spirit mm -hmm. episode we did like trusting that the law yeah. by the power of the spirit will do its work and convict people cut them to the heart you know and then they will cry out well who then can be saved well hey Here's here's part here's a uh, you know point three of my three point sermon you know like <laughs> if you can you know you yeah. you can and by the power you know repent and believe and I think um, you know I I wrote an article about this uh, this very distinction law and gospel with respect to being taught by Gerhard Ferdy in no small way about what to listen for in a church service and that's when I can you know it doesn't really matter denomination really when it comes down to people who have the right diagnosis for what's wrong with the people to whom they're speaking, because a preacher who knows that they are, they were once dead in their trespasses and sin and had nothing but been brought to new life by faith. When they stand in front of other similarly, formerly or currently dead people, then it's an altogether different message than, than like you said, Matt, than the infomercial, like, look how Jesus, like, isn't it cool to be on team Jesus? It's like, well, yes, but, but I, I'm not sure, exactly sure you you know we're 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 talking about that in the same way. It's an infomercial to the unconverted, but to the converted who aren't doing better, after a while it just becomes angry and strident. That's right. And this is actually right. good news for Christian people too, because we come to church week after week, uh, reflecting on the lives we've just led this last week, wondering, have I blown it? Am I? Am I still okay? And this slavery to Christ is actually a wonderfully comforting word because Ooh. he will not let you go. You are, in Amen. fact, his slave. He owns you. You were bought with a price, and you are his. And despite the life that we all know that you've led because we've led it too, 
we can rest and relax and say Hosanna once again, that we are owned by a merciful savior. Amen. Yeah. I mean, and that's a message that undercuts the power of the church as an institution, you know, which is why it was very threatening at the time of the reformation um, and remains so today, because if you need me or the, you know, church membership or participation to some degree to sort of, to fill in that last little bit that you're uncertain about, you know, well, that's a very powerful and lucrative card to hold. You know, I always talk about the way that the medieval church at the very least was, um, is like the uh, roulette table, you know, like the green on the roulette table ensures that the house will always win, you know? So like you could be having, you know, crushing it, but they have that one little uh, piece of uncertainty, that one little piece that takes away the confidence and the assurance that you have, which then forces you, you know, I don't know, have you gone on a pilgrimage recently? You know, have you, are you really, are you, are you fully up to date with your pledge? You know, have do you, you own a piece of the you? true cross? <laughs> That's right. I mean, well, this, you know, you see where that ends. It's like, well, yeah, I'm pretty sure, sir. I mean, like, what's the worst that could happen? You're like, I mean, how long is eternity? <laughs> this is really important as far as, uh, I mean, you mentioned earlier how people should listen to sermons and assess churches. If you come away from your, your parish church service every Sunday, with a like a, a list and <laughs> a list of things you have to do um, in order, to, yeah, to accomplish the next level of sanctification. I mean, yes. so so are you are you having are you having are you struggling with lust? Well, okay, uh, then you need to um, you know get get a thing on your computer to to watch to watch over your shoulder, you know, have an accountability partner, uh, take cold showers, whatever it might be, um, <laughs> and then. You know, you and go, oh, yeah, by right. the way, gouge yeah. your eyes out. Yeah, yeah, right, the right. Final, the final so you get this list and you go out and you go out and you fail like on Monday or maybe Sunday night. And <laughs> you're, oh man, what are we going to do now? Whereas, you know, whereas I think if you recognize, okay, uh, you have this last problem, it's a sin. Um, but how is that dealt with primarily? Is it primarily dealt with by you going out and trying harder? No. Is that, is that how your Christian life began? By you trying harder? Right. No. That's your right. Christian life began by you trusting in someone who has done the work on your behalf. And, and Paul and says that. Right, exactly. Like, you who began you who began <laughs> by the spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Like that's exactly the point. And that doesn't see here's the point though, Matt, is it doesn't it doesn't undermine the seriousness of sin in any way. Like no. you are not you are a moral agent. You have agency. And the seriousness of sin is reflected in the way that it kills you and destroys your relationship with God and with your neighbor. I mean, this is right. a serious thing. Part of the sort of behavior modification model of church, which doesn't take sin seriously enough, is that it well, it's precisely that, is that it doesn't actually weep with the brokenness of the world. It doesn't actually look in your own heart and say, yeah. you know, I, I wish that I could be rid of this. And that in and of itself, as we talked about before, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the whole holy guilt, I think C.S. Lewis, uh, or maybe Chesterton said, but, you know, that we're, we're not annoyed by our sins, but there's, there's windows, you know, seasons where we're actually um, brought brought low in a, in a very Christian-like way and can actually um, exclaim with the Apostle Paul, who will deliver me from this body of death? You know, and that comes after having, you and know. And then have an answer kids. that's not you. Amen. Right. That's right. St. <laughs> right. Paul then does say, thanks be thanks to God be to through God. Christ Jesus, my Lord. He doesn't say, right. I have the wherewithal within me to do this. He calls yeah. out to another. Yeah, I'll never forget it. So I was at uh, I was at um, uh, Passion two thousand or two thousand uh, yeah two thousand um, 
and it was John Piper was a headliner and it was like, you know, outside of Memphis. It was, it was pretty awesome. It was like, you know, um, I was a senior in college and I'll never forget because John Piper that by that point I've been reading him and I wasn't angered by him and I was reading some of his more, more I thought seemingly deterministic works, you know, future grace and, um, uh, what was the other one? Uh, Desiring God. And anyway, he talked about going on missions as a participation in the already accomplished work of God's salvific mission for the world. And I still at that point had no idea what he was talking about. I was like, so you already believe these people will be saved and you think somehow it'll be really fun to be a part of that. You know, I mean, as the sort of still cynical 20 or 21 year old that I was. <laughs> And I can only say, what, 20 years later, 22 years later, that I get it. I get that. Like, I think, and, and not only do I get it, it's actually the confidence that I have to even be a preacher. Right. Like, if I thought it was literally on my eloquence or my rhetorical skills or how cool my tennis shoes looked, then I um, – Let's be clear, I J.D. has terrified. never preached in tennis shoes. That's the second time he's mentioned <laughs> sneakers well, You don't know preachers and sneakers? Right? Oh, I yeah, know. I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I have a real problem. Are, are you feeling convicted by that, JD? Do you feel bad? Well, I know that people, you know, uh, actually one of the sort of, this is, says too much about me, but one of the wonderful things about being in a liturgical church is the lack of vanity that comes with, or, or the, the fact that you don't have to worry about what you wear on Sunday morning. Like that's yeah. actually a pretty freeing thing. Talk about being freed. I remember like half the discussions growing up uh, on the way home from church was about the pastor's tie or like, you know, it looks like he should get to the gym or something like, you know, what was he thinking? Like, well, now it's like, well, he's wearing a white robe. Yeah. Look, um, but, but we interrupted but, but you. Think, you were yeah, saying so this that, is what I yeah. would say that now I get it, that, that there's a joy and I can only be grateful to the Lord in this because I understand, I understand well how crazy it sounds to say that, that I get the joy of participating in, sort of uh, the harvest that has already been planted, already been promised and secured and, and has no, nothing to do with me other than I get to be part of uncovering it and sort of, um, and bringing the dead to new life. It's already been, already been secured. I mean, I think that's, you know, I, I didn't have any idea 22 years ago that I would be the one uh, agreeing with John Piper in this respect, but I, I get it and, and have, have considered that to be one of the great joys of even, uh, of being a minister and being a preacher, particularly in seasons where, you know, it looks like it's hard, hard, rocky soil. Like, well, you know, there's always going to be um, jackhammer seasons as opposed to, you know, just sort of verdant um, lusciousness. And, um, and that may be where we are. I mean, that's like what you're up there in upstate New York. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is like, like hard this is travel. like farming in the <laughs> Gobi <Yeah>. Desert. <laughs> 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 I mean, you, you, it really is, you don't, I remember being jealous going down and visiting my hometown in Texas when, you know, you just see these startup churches, we're launching tomorrow, we're launching on next Sunday, and then, you know, you pass by the parking lot on Sunday, just packed with cars. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. That doesn't happen in New York, in Central New York. Well, that happened you, in Louisville, like, I remember some yeah. guy that was like, oh, he used to be a like a waiter and he started a church last week that has like 2000 people, you know, or something like, Oh, well, that's, <laughs> but, but that's one nice. thing, I mean, just, you know, I'm sorry, man. one, one, one thing about, about doing ministry up in a place like this is that you don't have too many nominal Christian yeah. people who are just coming to church because that's what, what you do. I mean, you don't just do that up here in the right. coming to church, especially to our church, which is, 
pretty well known in our city for what we've taken stands on, right? I mean, you don't, you don't just come to Good Shepherd because you are uh, wanting to fit in with the upper crust in Binghamton, New York. That's the last reason you come to Good Shepherd. You have to be willing to say, okay, I'm with Jesus. And, um, and so, you know, that, that's, that's a testimony to someone having been truly brought to Amen. genuine, genuine faith rather than, uh, someone who has just wanted to identify with a, with a social norm. And to the actual work of the Holy Spirit where we water, yes, but it is God who gives the growth. And so none of our churches, I mean, I, I meet in an elementary school cafeteria, like you're not coming to my church because of me or because of the school or because of the music. And thank God, because if I had to shoulder that weight, I could never do this. It's only because I believe that the Holy Spirit is at work and that Almighty God is bringing these things about that I can even stand up on a Sunday morning and say anything. Amen. And it's going to be the case more and more the case, Matt. I mean, we talked about this before, but I think that the sort of the, the cultural tsunami of, um, you know, identity issues and, um, you know, sort of appeals to other religion, you know, pluralism and sort of pantheism and all of the sort of arguments against traditional Orthodox Christianity is just going to has and is going to continue to just to wash through um, the quote unquote, you know, American evangelical landscape and just uproot plants by the, the millions. Um, and we see this happening all over the place, how quickly a lot of the um, you know, sort of evangelical, quote unquote, elite, um, or capitulated to all manner of uh, sort of cultural norms that are that are expected of kind of you know high-minded, right-thinking people. And it reminds me of a book that I read a while back ago by the late great, uh, in my opinion, Peter Berger, and it was called um, "Secular Europe: A Religious America?" Question mark. And the whole context of the book, and I read this back um, when I was actually over in Europe, uh, was that. There, where because this tsunami, uh, you know, sort of post-Christian enlightenment tsunami had already blown through Europe, that the people that remained in churches in and throughout Europe, by and large, were marked distinctive uh, by their sort of Christian convictions, because there was no, there was no sort of cultural capital left, you know, in Berlin to, to be going to church on, on, you know, unless perhaps there was a good organ recital or something, but there was no, um, and so the people left were, was it were true believers, you know? And so yeah. the question was that because it was so easy, Peter Berger was making this argument because it was so relatively easy and uncontroversial to be a, identified as a Christian in America. That what he was arguing was that the strength of the European church was actually stronger than the strength in general of the American church because they had yet to face any persecution. And so now, you know, he's, he's now blessed memory, but I think we are seeing that and we're going to find it more and more the case that we're going to be in Binghamton, even down in, in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, you know, even where the buckle of the, of the Bible belt, you know, was, was cinched tight, you know, um, it's going to be more and more the case that, that we're going to find ourselves sort of hard scrabble uh, going forward. But thank God, we have the, we've been talking about the confidence that the Holy Spirit has not, is, is, is alive and well, you know, that the Lord has gone ahead. And if we are entering into a time of sort of rebuilding uh, the church, that that is not only been foreordained, but has already been uh, providentially given to us as the people that will be in charge of, of doing that work in this generation. Isn't that kind of Paul's argument that as the church is persecuted, as we're beaten and knocked down and, uh, become less and less acceptable to society. The fact that it continues to bring in converts, that, that, it, can, that it continues to grow and thrive and isn't, isn't shut down, 
that itself is testimony to the the fact that it's God's work, not ours. That he it's Amen. his his power working in the church that that maintains it and that grows it. Otherwise, if it were just human free will, human will, we'd uh, give it up. We would, yeah. No one would go to. No one would. No one would would have become a Christian in uh, you know, the two hundreds or three hundreds A.D because there's nothing you're going to gain by it. Absolutely nothing and everything to lose. So why do it? Well, there's only one reason to do it. And that's if God has made you alive. He's taken uh, your dead, dead fleshy heart and given it life. Amen. And of course it brings up the question, you know, which is, which is a real one. Um, Well, what about those who who don't believe, you know, what about those who, you know, are they preordained? You know, I mean, this is, this is again, Romans 10 and 11, like did, did God create these people for wrath? Are they, and I think for me, you know, people have tried to put, in my opinion, too fine a point on some of this. If you look at um, William Perkins, who was one of our archbishops back in the, I want to say the 16th century, right? but, you know, he has the great, that great, um, the golden chain, he calls it, you know, and it's his, in, it's his diagram that, that shows expressly like the various states of belief and unbelief and the regenerate and where the, the, unelect, the non-elect and the elect go. And there's this one terrifying one. Um, which is a, de- a depiction of a person who their entire life believes, confesses, and believe and assumes, or, or, or is confident that they are a Christian, but in fact they're not. And so you know, there's that, which is which is terrifying for me. That is I'm terrifying. Like, okay, if that's true, well then I guess I'm glad I don't know it because I will be the most one of the most surprised, you know, when, when St. Peter calls. But but the point is that I think that that there is a as we talked about before, sort of a holy. like a faithful profession that that we are not God in some of these things and that his ultimate wisdom, you know, will, will prevail. And that if there are no tears in heaven, you know, as as we say, as Eric Clapton wrote, um, then, then, you know, we can trust him. I mean, that's finally, it is like, who do you want to be in charge of salvation? You or Jesus? Like, that's the question. And so if it's Jesus, well, then he's going to have some things that we're not privy to, you know, Luther calls the third light of knowledge that is just too great for us to comprehend. But we have the other two lights by which we walk. We have the light of nature, which shows us our need and our depravity. We have the light of the gospel, which gives us our hope and security. And that's that's good enough for me, um, you know, which is which is no small thing to say. And that's also yeah. why we preach, why we stand up every Sunday, every day, why we incessantly and without ceasing, we proclaim the news, the good news of Amen. Jesus Christ who came to raise the dead to new life. And that can be you. And that can be you today. Yeah. And I think that's an important part too, Nick, about pastorally speaking is that, you know, who is it? Our old teacher, um, uh, Paul's all used to say about the, the heart, you know, had unconverted, you know, continents of your heart, you know, parts, dark, dark aspects of your, you know, even the Christian who's been there forever, like finds a new place of need and a new place of bondage every Sunday, you know, every day. And so the idea that the preaching would be to anyone other than uh, Romans 7, Simo Eustace Epicator, you know, people who are, who are wrestling with their belief and unbelief, their, their faith and their un, unfaith, their, their, their sin and their flesh, and, the, and all the things that come into that um, need a preacher, you know, need, a, need law to be brought to bear without flinching, you know, as, as hard and as uh, uncompromising as the convicting the law can be, and then the raising to new life with the glory and the majesty of, of God's free grace to sinners. I mean, that's the, that's the pattern, you know, and I think it's a pattern that's replicated even if you live to be 98 years old and you've been a, the most devout person your entire life, um, you're going to need to hear that 
You're going to want to hear it as the last thing. Yeah. Tell me one more time. Yeah. I mean, I remember in seminary, I was told, you know, always leave your, your congregants with a challenge. You know, go, go out, go out of the church service with, you know, marching orders. Yeah. Marching orders. Yeah. What are you going to do now? What do you, so you've heard this, what are you going to do? And I believe that I thought, yeah, okay. That makes sense. Cause you want to, you know, you don't want to leave them just, you know, complacent, but boy, that's burdensome. But it's so much better to go out knowing you're forgiven, uh, knowing that the blood of Christ still counts. Amen. It's not. It's not just something that uh, that you received. Forgiveness isn't just something you received once when you you know walked down the sawdust trail at the Billy Graham or, or Franklin Graham uh, revival. It's something that you you that predicates you everything about your existence now and, and always will. Uh, yeah, and, that's and of course right. the irony the irony here is that people who get sent out with marching orders tend to not do anything and people who get sent out reminded of their new life tend to do the kinds of things that scripture asks of us anyway. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I love exactly that. You know, the one, one of the changes of the ACNA prayer book, I do not like they took out this wonderful couplet from the post communion prayer that we are going to go out in strength and courage to love and serve you know, because I think that, that that's what the whole message of the, the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the church is to strengthen and encourage you in a world that is that takes away your strength. It's innervating and it's it's discouraging, you know, to strengthen and encourage to love and to serve. Thanks be to God. And then we go in peace, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. The only way we amazing. have peace. Amen. And I think that, you know, I heard so many sermons in my life that essentially paint a picture of what life your life would be like if you really believed. That's the whole sermon. And so the very, the very end is like, and would it, would this be so, you know, and then like mic drop and then walk back and you're like, I can oh only goodness. take so many of those sermons before I start prying into your life, because I'm pretty sure you're not working this out either. And I'm tired of listening to you in fact, you know, and I remember, I mean, I have names I could give you, but, but that was like a technique. And finally you want to say, you know, do you really, is this working for you? Like, is this, is this like, how, how is this operating in your life? Because it seems to me that this is just, you know, increasingly heavy, you know, and we just had, we just had the gospel reading last week, you know, Jesus himself said that his yoke was easy and his burden, his, his, his burdens are light and you don't seem to be in any way unburdened. And you just seem to me, you seem to want me to participate in your burdensome existence. And I, <laughs> I don't want to do it anymore. And I think that's where hopefully, uh, the intervention of a preacher, not eloquent necessarily or particularly gifted in any way other than convicted by the, the word to preach in season and out the law and the gospel and then trust that God will will bring the increase. You know, I, re- I really think that a lot of the deconversion stories that we're getting nowadays, people who have, grew up in evangelical environments and then, you know, just their eyes were open, they saw the hypocrisy of the whole thing. Yeah. And now they, they realize it's all a big lie. No one really... Uh, lives like they, they they preach, and so now I've decided to you know marry my same sex person and have uh, all kinds yeah. of crazy things going on in my life. My guess is that person has re- either was not sitting under actual actual preaching of the gospel, but has been sitting under the preaching of the law his or her entire life. And of course, when you are sitting under the law, you notice the hypocrisy because that's right. That's right. because no one no one does it. <laughs> no one does the law, and so you're and so that's you right. come out of that thinking, my goodness, this is all a big lie. Whereas if, right. if the preacher, the person's whole life says, 
oh no, I'm I'm a wicked sinner. Just like you're a wicked sinner. We're all wicked sinners. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, as you're saying that we have a savior who saves sinners. And uh, that that just changes the entire it's a Copernican revolution in the heart of the of the person who listens, I think, if they hear that. That's right. Some might say they'd be born again, even. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Some <laughs> might say. I think I read that Some somewhere once. That's right. <laughs> Well, listen, guys, that's a good word to end on. It's going to have to be our last word. We are out of time. As usual, we have not said all that could be said. Um, But if you want to continue the conversation or suggest a topic for us to address on the show, please do send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. We've already gotten a few emails. Thanks so much for sending them in. Thank you for listening. Um, You are Matt Kennedy and J.D. Koch, and I'm Nick Lannon. We'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 